0: Uh, I was going over some of the scriptures I intend to cover today, and the overall thing that leaped out at me was the hope that uh, those scriptures talk about. Now, last time I spoke, we went into uh, John 14 through 17 and finished that section up. And I spent two sermons in that area because I really felt that that is... A section of Scripture that helps describe our relationship with our Father in Heaven, the things that Christ said about Him and about us and the relationship, I felt, is one of the best areas that you can go to to understand what our relationship with God ought to be. Uh, John uh, puts things in such a very simple and yet a very comforting and strengthening way and inspiring Uh, So, I did spend quite a little time on that and feel good about that because I think it is important for us to consider and to understand how great the love is. He mentioned that he sent his son for the whole world. Right now, we are the ones that are being called, and this is our opportunity, but as sin-sick and wretched as this world is here in the end time, and as much as we all duly uh, deserve to be wiped out, God is going to have mercy. And he, but He's going to let some terrible things happen to humble people and to get them in the right attitude. Us, the church, it says, will be persecuted. It will be put into all kinds of troubles, trials, and tribulations to prepare us, to humble us, to get us ready To help Christ rule the world. So he is putting us through on an emotional, spiritual level what he is about to put the earth through in physical terms. And it is difficult for us. It is not easy. It is so hard to try to be like God in a world that is so unlike God there is no resemblance And not to have the attitudes of Satan and of humanity and that which comes natural to a carnal mind, the works of the flesh. It is so hard to fight that. And these disciples were left without Christ. As you may recall from the series I did about marriage uh, and how the, the marriage went, Christ left The bride, and that's in Jewish tradition, left the bride, or the the man would leave the bride, go back to his father's house, prepare a place for her, and then toward the end of the summer, he would come and reclaim her. He would send a gift, which is pictured by the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, but it was not until the fall in the traditions that he came back to claim his bride, pictured by the Feast of Trumpets uh, and the first resurrection, followed by the marriage at the Day of Atonement when we did truly become at one with Him. So the marriage story in ancient history, in ancient Israel, was the same as the festival cycle. And the sim- sim- symbolism fits in a wonderful way. But between the time He sent the gift the husband, and that Christ sent the Holy Spirit. And the time He comes to reclaim His bride at Feast of Trumpets is a long, hot summer. They're apart for a period of time, and we needed the Holy Spirit to help us get through this period of time until Christ comes to redeem us and to marry us. So, being without Him... During that time, a bride was to get herself ready, even as we prepare. And this long, hot summer uh, and the summer doldrums that can be are there for a purpose. And it all fits together with the original marriage thing uh, that they went through, as well as the symbolism of us being a part of the kingdom of God. So we are getting toward the end of that summer this year. Feast of Trumpets coming up before the month is over. And we need to be preparing. And we do this annually. We don't know what year Christ is coming back. But we go through this every year. And as Feast of Trumpets and Feast of Tabernacles approach, Feast of Trumpets for us, Atonement for us, and then the Feast of Tabernacles for society that's left, and the great white throne judgment for those who have died in the past and are resurrected to have an opportunity at salvation. We're here to prepare ourselves, and the summertime is a difficult time. It's easy to get distracted. It's easy to get really busy. It's easy to get our eyes off God and on what we are doing, and then we find ourselves, sometimes with our attitudes, suffering. And that's why Christ said that we would fast while he was not here, but when he returns, we will not fast. And just as he says he will turn those fasts of Zechariah into feasts of joy, I think the same thing is true of atonement. It pictures becoming at one with him, and I wonder, even though it does not say so necessarily, if that time would also become a feast of joy in the kingdom of God once we are with him. Because once we're with Him, there's no need to fast. Of course, if we're spirit beings, it doesn't matter whether we eat or not. Uh, I find that hard to grasp. And yet God eats and God drinks wine and so on. So He can enjoy those things even though they are not necessary for life. And He says that wine cheers His heart. I suspect it needs cheered in terms of Him having to deal with us on a regular schedule daily and this whole world and satan's accusations and everything that go on and i'm not trying to imply that god drinks too much don't get me wrong he doesn't need alcohol to be happy to be pleased to be full of joy and so on but he does use it deuteronomy says and selectively i presume i don't know what his drinking habits are But he certainly can eat and drink when he chooses to. And Christ said he would not drink wine again until he drinks it anew with us in his kingdom. So it'll be at the marriage celebration that he drinks wine with us. And the marriage is slated to be at atonement. So I don't know whether the ceremony occurs during atonement and we drink that evening or just how that's all set up. And that's subject to speculation only. But we have some wonderful times ahead of us in the kingdom of God. And it is interesting that after Christ gave that dissertation that John recorded in chapters 4 and 14 through 17, that the disciples went out to do what he had told them to do. To preach about the Father and the Son and the kingdom of God. And the amount of hope that comes forth in these scriptures we're about to address is uh, what stands out to me. There are other factors here, certainly. But I want to get into these because the bride needs hope. That's one of the big three. Faith, hope, and love. Love being the biggest. Faith will be fulfilled someday. You will no longer need faith that you can be part of the kingdom of God because you'll be there. You won't need hope for the things to come because they will if it transpired. But you will still need love forevermore to get along in peace, happiness, harmony, and oneness throughout eternity. So love is the greatest, and it transcends those other two, ultimately. But they're still the big three, and right now we're still in desperate need of hope, are we not? To keep us going, to keep us moving, to keep us overcoming, changing, and being what we ought to be. So let's go to the book of Acts, which begins the... Things that the disciples wrote after Christ was gone. And I want to pick it up in Acts 1 and verse 4. And being assembled together with them, commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait for the promise of the Father, which, says he, you have heard of me. So they were to wait there. He told them to tarry 50 days until Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would come. And things began to change immediately when they had the Holy Spirit. And it came in power at that time. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days hence. Baptism in water symbolizes death. That's not something you necessarily look forward to in one sense. Uh, It pictures the old man dying, the sins being washed away. So there's wonderful symbolism in baptism. But it basically pictures death. The coming of the Holy Spirit pictures the beginning of a new life. Of a... uh, Well, lost the word. I must be getting old. Uh, The beginning of a new life. Conception is what I was looking for. A new life is conceived when the Holy Spirit is put within us with the laying on of hands. That is what we need to help us grow to be ready to be born into the kingdom of God. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? That has been a question that has been on the lips of everyone who has been a Christian, I suppose, ever since. It was to the disciples. They thought Christ was going to return soon. And that was one of the first things that came up. When, when are you coming back? And they expected him to come soon. And then they began to realize later on, it's not during my lifetime. And other people, believe it or not, have read the Bible from the first century A.D. Up until now, some had the Bible back in 900, 1400, 1600, and since. And you know What? I'll bet you every generation that read the Bible applied it to themselves and they all thought Christ was coming in their lifetime. And it didn't happen. Now here we are thinking the same thing. Are we going to be disappointed as well? No. This time it's true. This time it will happen before this generation of old people I see out in front of me here today are dead. Because we are at the end of this age. We have polluted this earth almost beyond being able to live on it. We have ruined everything God has done. We have created a situation where war-war is going to break out shortly and most of mankind is going to die. And you don't even have to read the Bible to see that. There are people on the Internet who are pretty astute and know what's going on in the world. And they recognize that mankind is about to destroy himself. That World War III, when the economies of the whole world collapse and war breaks out, is going to be devastating. And they know that the people in power today intend to decimate the earth to about a 10% level of what today is. They've written about it, they talk about it, they plan it, and that's what they have in mind. Ironically, God says that's exactly what's going to happen. That there will be less than 10% left when this all is finished. And we have entered that time. And now this global collapse and all the terrible tragedies that are going to occur is almost upon us and if you have a a wit about you you can see that so it's getting very close that means the return of Christ is close but it means there are going to be an awful lot of terrible things happen in the next few years and we need to be prepared Is it time to restore again the kingdom to Israel? And it wasn't. And it hasn't been until this age. And the restoration of his kingdom is not very far away. (coughs) Speaking in terms of 6,000 years of existence of man, and considering that Christ will be on this earth restoring his kingdom, what shall I say? I don't like to pick numbers. 10, 12, 15, 20 years from now, I don't think it can be much further. Uh, we're getting grayer and balder and so on. And this generation that has been called to have a few chosen from is aging rapidly. Most were called in the 50s, 60s, and into the 70s. And some of them at the time when they were called were already 30, 40, 50, 60 years of age. So that period of time that God called many and said, this generation will not pass before these things happen, is now growing quite old, and many are dying. So it has to come soon in order for those prophecies to be fulfilled. So that big question they had, and that they were not allowed to see, we shall see in our lifetimes. And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own power. And even told them that he did not know the day or the hour when he would return, but the Father only knows that. You know what? I want to be as close to the Father as I can get. He knows more than anyone else, even more than Christ himself. Now, whether he has divulged that to Christ at this time or by now, I do not know. He may by now know the day and the hour as well, but then again, he may not. The Father may still be holding that to himself. But the Father is greater than Christ. And Christ looked to him and told us to pray to him. There is not a scripture that I am aware of that says that we are to pray to Christ. Now, that has been a little bit of a conflict in my mind in a way. And how do we approach it? Because we go to the Father through Christ. So He's there, and He's the one who mediates our prayer and causes it to be taken to and known of the Father. And it is by His authority only that we can even go to the Father. No man could breach that veil until Christ died and was resurrected. The veil of the temple then was rent, and we were provided access to the Father, which no one before had ever had. And he told us to go to the Father, and when we pray, pray our Father in heaven. But he is to be our bridegroom. We are to marry him. So, it leaves a bit of a question, I address all my prayers to the Father, but sometimes I refer to the two of them and to my father and my potential husband and and talk as if to both. But the prayer opens and closes with the father through Christ. And I don't know, there's nothing really in the scripture about praying to Christ. Except that we know that according to scripture, he is now worthy of honor and worship. He did not allow people to worship him when he was on the earth. But now he is worthy of that honor and that praise. So there's no scripture that says to address him in our prayer directly uh, that I've found. Uh, maybe I need to research that more carefully and maybe to make a good Bible study to see if there's anything in there. I've not really addressed it in that way. But uh, it's a question in my mind about how directly and how much uh, we can address Christ uh, since we direct our prayers to the Father. Now, Protestantism as a whole, and so-called Christianity as a whole, has very little to do with the Father. They all preach Jesus. They all talk to Jesus. Uh, that's, That's just where they go, for the most part. But He directed us to the Father. So, just what is the relationship there? When you talk to one, you talk to both, really. And perhaps that's the overall answer to it. Because they are of one mind, they are the same in spirit, they think the same way. So now that they are both there and Christ has returned, perhaps when we talk to the Father, uh, Christ there by His side hears everything and applies it to Himself as well. So there's not much said on that, but it's a, a bit of a question in my mind how much that should be. That's aside from the point here, I guess, in a way. But then again, it's not. When we're addressing the Father and the Son, we need to understand our relationship. So perhaps that can be studied. I need to remember to do that and see if I can learn some things about the subject. But everything Christ said to the disciples directed them to the Father unquestionably. Let's go to Romans now. And I want to go to first chapter 4 and pick it up in about verse 8. Romans 4, verse 8. I'm breaking into the context a little, but there's some area here that I want to discuss in terms of our relationships. Bless is the man to whom the eternal will not impute sin. Now that to me is a very hopeful statement. We all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have bad attitudes, say the wrong things, make mistakes daily, infringe upon the rights of others and the feelings of others, impinge upon them in many ways. So we make mistakes and we don't have the perfect one-on-one relationships we should have. But if we are... Forgiven and have God's Holy Spirit and are a part of the bride to be, we can come into a circumstance whereby God does not impute sin to us. We are not living a life of sin. We are not going the direction of sin. We are fighting not to sin. We are trying to control our thoughts and our feelings and our emotions. We're trying to do what's right, and yet though we fail, and fail miserably so many times, yet in all, since we are headed this direction, and going toward perfection, we can enter the place, the state, if you will, of existence whereby God does not impute sin to us. So when Satan goes before the Father to accuse us, as he does daily before the throne of God to this day, God will not impute it because we have the blanket of Christ's blood to forgive our sins. And it is with a certain automatic approach that God is willing to forgive us if we are striving and trying to be what we ought to be. Now, how could you describe him being blessed that God will not impute sin to except someone in that position? I would hope we could all be there where God just tells Satan, it doesn't matter. That person is trying to do what's right and they'll talk to me about it. They'll ask me to forgive them and I'm going to do it. I'm not going to impute that sin to them, nor, and I will remove the penalty of it. Do you realize, on a day-to-day basis, that God does not lower the boom and give you what you deserve? Every one of us would be dead if we got the treatment we deserve, day by day. I would not see any of you next week here Nor would you see me here if God gave us what we deserve. Because all sin carries the penalty of death. All sin. And we sin daily. But we are working at, as Christ told us to do, to die daily. We crucify the self so that God will not have to crucify us. And he, for those who are striving to do what is right, will forgive our sins and not impute them to us. That's why we struggle daily to kill the self, the self-will, the pride, the ego that we all possess. We work at it. We try to do what's right. And it's very difficult, is it not, to do what's right. When your body, your mind, your emotions, your feelings would carry you a different direction than God's way and God's law. It's a struggle. It's a struggle to be positive when you want to be negative. It's hard to be in a good attitude when you feel bad. It's hard to think of others when you have your mind on poor, pitiful me and how bad I feel because of my circumstance. It's a struggle. But God does not impute sin to us. He lets it slide. He covers it under the blood of Christ. Sins that we commit, thoughts we have, backs that we stab, God forgives without giving the penalty, even though sometimes we do not remember to repent or to ask forgiveness of those sins. Does He not? Sometimes we don't even know we sinned. Most of the time I think we're fairly aware on some level that what we're saying should not be said, or we come to the knowledge of that shortly thereafter when we realize we stuck both feet in our mouth. But we don't always recognize, and sometimes we let our minds drift away from where they should be, and we don't even realize it, and maybe they'll snap back in time, but... There we were in la la land and dreaming or fantasizing about something that should not be. It's easy for your mind to go many different places and then you never think about it. You you get back on track, busy with what you're doing or whatever, and, and forget about that. But at the end of the day, if God wanted to judge you for what you did or said or thought, we'd all die. By sundown tonight. But he does not impute sin to us. He is willing to wipe it away under the blood of Christ because of what we're doing and where we're headed and the struggle that we are making to swim upstream and to go the straight, the narrow, the crooked path to his kingdom. And it is not an easy path. So he has mercy. And doesn't impute sin to us. To me, that is a very, very encouraging verse there that we need to take into consideration. Verse 9: Comes this blessedness then upon the circum- circumcision only or upon the uncircumcision also? For we say that faith was reckoned to Abraham for righteousness. How was it then reckoned? When he was in circumcision or in uncircumcision? Not in circumcision. But before he was circumcised, he's introducing the element of those who were not blood Israelites here whom God has called and chosen and that the Gentiles who were not circumcised can also be added in. So God does not deal in exclusivity in that sense. Even though he started it through Abraham before he was circumcised, he's included others. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed to them also. So God even though he began to deal with Abraham thousands of years ago, and Abraham's seed, Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and so on, and David and Solomon, and on down through the disciples who were also uh, perhaps all Israelite. One perhaps a question about, but for the most part. And yet God saw fit to include anybody on earth who was willing to serve God. Anybody who would be willing to repent of the way of this world and go God's way can be included and has been included. And the father of circumcision to them who are not of the circumcision only, but who also walk in the steps of that faith of our father, Abraham, which he had being yet uncircumcised. For the promise that he should should be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So Abraham believed God even though he had not seen the promises fulfilled. And believed them even against nature when he and his wife were beyond the capacity to have children. God created a miracle and it happened. They believed. Even though there was a little chuckle here and there and perhaps an attitude, now and then (coughs) they did believe it and it did happen. Now I want to focus on something in verse 13 that perhaps we do not always notice. (coughs) We think of the promised land. We think of the land that God promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And we've been doing some study recently to show where that real promised land was and is today. But notice here that we should be heirs of the world with Abraham. So the whole earth is the promised land to Abraham and to his seed thereafter. Now, there was an original promised land, and Israel will be settled in that land in the millennium, (coughs) And yet, on the other hand, we need to have an expanded view and realize that Abraham was promised the world, the whole world, heir of the world. Now, does it not say in Revelation 5.10, we shall reign on the earth and we will reign with Christ and his kingdom will encompass the entire earth, will it not? And as the bride of Christ, then we will rule the whole earth. So God has not just promised Israel the promised land, but He's promised you and me as the spiritual seed of Abraham, whether we be physical blood of Abraham or Gentile blood or whatever blood we are. Any human being who will serve God is offered the whole world. The whole thing. Do you see why Satan hates us so terribly. He was given rulership and is the present evil ruler of this world. And he offered it to Christ if he would bow to him. Well, what did that mean? That meant really that Christ would be ruling under him the whole earth because he would still be in charge and Christ would be his lackey or his secretary or his second in charge. He was willing to offer that, and Christ and the Father would not allow it. But Christ and the Father have offered us the opportunity that Satan has had and blown. He has not ruled the earth by the laws of God, the ways of God. So we see an earth today that is wicked, that is polluted. That is upside down. It is full of misery and war and famine and distress, increasingly in this country as well as around the world, because of the way Satan lives, thinks, and acts. And the world has followed him because he is the world ruler. Now, Christ defeated Satan and... Thereby qualified to rule the earth. He has not taken charge. He is not here yet. But he's promised to come and rule the world. And he has invited you and me. He has asked us to inherit the earth. To rule the whole world. To take Satan's place and rule with him. He's offering us what Satan offered him. Only he can produce it. He can make it happen. And he shall. There are very, very few people who have ever obeyed God in their lifetimes on this earth. The number is so small that God said, I called Abraham because he was a faithful man and I'm going to work through his family because of the faith of Abraham. But I am also going to open this to anyone on earth who is willing to follow my ways. He did not expect to be overwhelmed and overrun when he made this offer. And indeed, he has not been. Very, very few have accepted the challenge. Look at what we have. I think everyone here is frustrated by the things we see around us. The misery, the heartache, the suffering, the divorce, the pedophilia, the children born blind and deaf, the cancer, the heart disease, the diabetes, on and on it goes. Now we've ruined our minds And have Alzheimer's coming as a fourth leading cause of death in America today. Because of destroying the earth around us and misusing it and abusing it. And processing that which God made perfect for us to eat. To the point it isn't even food and it's killing us wholesale. And yet we still imbibe of it in so many, many ways, times. We just cannot give up the garbage of Satan. Sad. Why will you die, O Israel? Spiritual Israel. God has given us such great opportunity. And we are here learning to teach the world how to live, to eat, to conduct their marriages, how to rear their children, how to get along with one another, how to have unity and peace with no division and no bad attitudes. And no putting each other down, no pride, no vanity, no ego, no hurt feelings. We're here going through what we're going through to learn to be that way so that we can teach the whole world that. Now, it's easy to lose sight of that as we deal with one another and have attitudes toward each other, get upset with each other. Now, God is willing not to impute sin, but boy, you create some infraction for somebody around here and see what happens. They get upset, they get angry, they get nasty, they talk behind your back, on and on it goes. I say they, it's a general term, perhaps we is better, for we are all subject to these things. And it's sad that we have not all become of one mind without division. Without bad attitudes. But just means we got work to do. We have work to do, because we are called to be heirs of the entire world. Are we ready to rule the world? We have trouble ruling our own mind, our own spirit. We have trouble ruling our families with love and kindness and gentleness. And strength. We have trouble with our children. They're influenced by the world. They're influenced by their nature. And we're influenced by ours. And it's hard to be what we ought to be and to make them what they ought to be. This life is a trial. It is a test. It is frustrating. Let's just be frank, open, and honest about that. Life is not easy. It is very hard. When we went under the water, into that watery grave, and came out, and accepted the laying on of hands to give us the Spirit of God, we vowed that day that we would have good attitudes, that we would not let life get us down, that we would turn to God with our whole heart and depend upon Him to help us live and think the way we ought to live and think, and to crucify ourselves daily so that others wouldn't have to. And we are the only ones, individually, that we can change. You can have all the attitudes you want about anybody else, and you can make yourself miserable thinking about their faults and problems, and it doesn't hurt anybody but you. If we do not forgive others and let it go, And forget about it. Who does it eat on? It eats on the one that holds it. It doesn't eat on the one that you have the attitude toward. It eats on you. It makes your life miserable. It takes your joy away. I'm sure we can all think back at things that have been done to us in the past, 10, 20, 30, 40 years ago, 5 minutes ago, whatever. And we can put ourselves in a pretty rotten attitude. You know, I've had, I think, particularly a business partner years ago, decades ago, that did some things that really frosted me and hurt me very badly in many ways. You know what? I just had to finally let all that go. Because he didn't even know I had a bad attitude toward him 20, 30 years later. Didn't know it. Didn't bother him. He going on with his life. Who was I making miserable? Him? No, I was making myself miserable, thinking about bad things that have been done to me. Now, what profit was there in it? None. And if I didn't love my enemy, don't I have any clue where he is, what he's doing, how old he is, whether he's dead or alive. Have no idea today. So what good would it do to go back and think about those things where I was wrong and have a bad attitude about it today? Does it help me lay a tube of 4 to cross his head? No. Doesn't even know I have a bad attitude if I do. So who is it hurting? Me. If you hold on to something and don't let it go and forget about it and move on, it hurts you. How do you, how do we think in our own mind, if we dote on this thing and we have this hate, how do we think that hurts that other person? It's in your own head is where it is. It's in your own emotions. You're the only one you're making a bad attitude or having a bad attitude why do we afflict ourselves over something someone else did right, wrong, or imagined to us and yet we'll harbor those things we'll keep score we'll bring them up a year, two, three, four, five years later we don't let them go and they don't harm anybody but us Why can't we be like God, our Father, who imputes, not sin, to those who are trying to go the right way? He lets it go. He forgets about it. He doesn't hold it to our account. It's gone. He says He will remove our sins as far as the east is from the west. You can't remove anything any further than that. Gone. Forgotten. He says... When we enter His kingdom, our past, the past, will never be again mentioned to us. You, if you are in the first resurrection, when that trumpet sounds, will not have to face the Father and the Son with a listing of your sins and whether you be cast into a lake of fire are allowed into the kingdom of God. Do we realize we will not face that judgment? If you rise in the air to meet Christ, the judgment is done. You're glorified. Your sins will not be mentioned to you. You're part of the bride if you're in that first resurrection. It won't be time for him to say, Well, you know, we let you in, buddy, but it was by the skin of your teeth because you did this and this and this and you thought that and that. We will not have to face that. Judgment is now upon us. God is looking at us daily, He is considering our thoughts, our hearts. Judgment is now upon us. This is a day of salvation. Now, he is thinking about you and me today, tomorrow. We're in his thoughts. He counts our hair, and our thoughts are just right under it. And he's more interested in our thoughts than he is our hair. So he is vitally aware, because he's making that judgment now. On you and me. So when the resurrection occurs. You'll either rise. Or you won't. And that'll be final. Other people will be judged during the millennium. During the white great white throne judgment. But you and I are being judged right now. And if we are given. Glorification. Our sins will never be mentioned again. That is how far God removes them. Now. How far do we remove each other's faults, problems, comments, hurts, real or imagined? How far do we remove them? To the edge of our consciousness? Just beyond? So that they're right, close enough that we can bring them up any moment we want to and have an attitude about them or an attitude about that person. You know, it's easy to get an attitude about somebody. It really is. In my position, it's real easy to get an attitude about me. Do you know that? Yeah, you're aware of that. I know better than anyone else here, by any means. And probably worse. But God called me to do a job. And I have to do that job the best I know how. And some of you will not like the way I do some things. You will not like what I say. You won't like the approach I take. You won't like the way I do things. I'm sorry. I am what I am. And I'm trying to change what I am. And yet I'm still me. God has given you a hurdle to overcome when He ordains anybody into the ministry or as an elder or whatever. You have to put that man, in a sense, aside because you won't agree with everything they do or say or the way that they are. They're too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny, too dumb, too whatever else you come up with. And none of us likes to be told what to do by a human being. It does not come natural. You can love a man... Or a woman, with all your heart, you could be willing to give your life for a husband or wife. But you still don't like them to tell you what to do. Either direction. You might love them more than anyone else on earth. But it is still unnatural to the human mind to like to be told what to do, even by those you love the most. We are yet carnal. We are yet prideful. We are yet egocentric. We are yet in attitudes of inferiority. We have complexes. And we feel inferior inside. We don't feel good about ourselves. And how can we when the standard is to be like God and we're so far short of it and it's easy to feel inferior? But our inferiority to God is not our biggest problem in that sense. We expect to be inferior to Him. It is our feelings about each other and how we feel inferior as humans, and we all do, to one degree or another. If we don't, there's another problem. But dealing with that is difficult. Because when we have inferior feelings, we don't want to be inferior. And when anyone points out in any form or fashion, real or imagined, that we are inferior, it hurts our feelings. It makes us defensive. We know we're not perfect, but we'd like to think of ourselves that way, and we wish others thought that even though we know better. So we have a difficulty. Why do you feel inferior? Because you are. We're all inferior to God, and one way or another, we're all inferior to each other. We have strengths and weaknesses, every one of us. So somebody's going to be stronger in a certain area than you are, and they're going to be weaker in another area than you are. We all have all of the above. And therefore, we compare ourselves among ourselves so that we can either feel bad or worse, depending on whether we're in a poor, poor, pitiful me attitude or we're feeling a bit superior today. We're always and constantly making comparisons among ourselves and other people. Now, God says... Those who compare themselves among themselves are not wise. It is not wise to do that, even though we all do it. We're being foolish when we do it. Because we need to be big enough in mind, big enough in spirit and close enough to God that we can recognize and see, and you can't avoid seeing sometimes, the faults and problems of others, the mistakes of others. But are we big enough and spiritual enough not to impute sin? Or do we get a bad attitude about somebody when we see a fault or a problem in them? And it may not be a real one. It may just be we think so. Because we impute motives to each other. Well, I know what that person's thinking. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. Maybe you don't read them right. Maybe you look at them through your own perspective and judge them by yourself. And too often we do that. They must be thinking the way I think. Well, not necessarily. They might not be thinking at all the way you think, but you think so. That's why Paul says we should esteem others better than ourselves. That's the bottom line. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Overlook their faults, their weaknesses and sins, and get the beam out of our own eyes. Not worry about the moat that is in their eyes. Now, we know this, don't we? We all know this but doing it is another ball game altogether i have a cartoon i think that marla clipped out of a newspaper i i i forget now even the characters involved but it says what do you think of others or let's see how did that go um I, I, oh, I have a knack for seeing other people's problems. And then they says, "Well, what about your own problems?" Well, I have a knack for overlooking those. Well, that was the gist of it. I'll get it remembered and spit out. But it's so true. That's why it got clipped and put on my desk. So when Paul said, esteem others better than yourselves, does that mean you go around looking through rose-colored glasses and just assuming everyone's better than you and therefore I must be so bad because they're all better than me? And that'll get us in a poor, pitiful me attitude too. No, it's just that we're not to look for. And if we do see things that we think are problematic with others, overlook it, pray for them, ask God's help, and try to do good to them and love them. That's what Christ did with us. He saw our faults, he saw our problems as did the Father, and he chose to overlook them. What time is it? Oh, I set my watch an hour forward when I was in Texas. They're they're an hour behind in Texas. No, they're an hour ahead. I thought suddenly I was 30 minutes overtime. Get me rattling, you never know. Anyway, let's think about this today. Are we willing to turn other stuff loose and get it not only out of our consciousness, but out of our subconsciousness and move on? Or will we torture ourselves about their problems from now on? God isn't that way. Our Father in heaven is not that way. And we're to be like our Father in heaven. Do, am I just talking today? Is this just words? that they just spill over here or get put on tape and forgotten? Or will we open our hearts and our minds and let these words of God penetrate so that it makes some change in our approach one to another. There is a lot of love here in this little group, and I see it expressed in many, many different ways. And yet, it's so easy for someone who gets in a bad attitude once in a while to say, Well, there's no love around here. Well, you're not feeling it at the moment, but there's a lot of it. There's a lot of it. And I don't want us to demean ourselves, and I don't want us accusing each other of not having any. Because the love of God is here. If it didn't, we'd all shot each other by now. We're willing to forgive one another to some degree, but I'm just encouraging us to go beyond what we have. And give each other the benefit of the doubt. And not to impute sin one to another. I just, my, I just fell on Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have. So why condemn each other? I think I said before, the standard is the word of God. The standard is the mind of God and to think as Christ thought and thinks. And we all understand now and recognize that. And that standard is put before us here week by week by week. And it is a very difficult standard to live up to. And it's a struggle. But it's so easy for us to look around and say, well, you're falling short. And the only way you can do it is say, I'm falling short. And if somebody criticizes you or says something about you that is out of school or shouldn't have been said, maybe they thought about it. Maybe they repented of it. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they meant it. But instead of being defensive and getting mad at or angry and reacting the way we so often do. Well, who said that? We don't take a criticism of ourselves (coughs) by nature as an opportunity to learn something about ourselves. So many times it's been said, if we can only see ourselves as others see us. We have our own view of ourselves, and other people have an entirely different view of us than what we have. And we can learn from criticism. We can learn from someone who points out our faults. Now, maybe they shouldn't be doing it. But still in all, why pass up the opportunity to check yourself against what they said? Instead, we want to know, who's my accuser? Who said that? Well, we want to know right now so we can be mad at him. We're already mad at them, we just don't know where to direct it. Because of our ego and our pride, our selfishness. What does it take to get to the point you can say, well, You weren't there, you didn't really see what I said or did, or maybe you were. You imputed my motive, but, you know, you didn't get all your facts straight. Well, we want to be sure that everybody got their facts straight. They're going to criticize us, they better have every fact in line or their whole argument is no good. So we'll get into the details. Well, what about this? What about that? What about something else? Now, they might have got their facts wrong. They might have got the story garbled. But you know what? They got the right person. They did. It's a fact. We all are far short of the glory of God. So whether they got your sin exactly pinpointed or not, or what your problem is, if they criticize you, they got the right guy. Because there's plenty wrong with you and me. There's plenty to pick at if you want to pick. Okay? There's plenty there. But why do you want to pick? Why do you want to pick at somebody? Is it because we have inferiority complexes and we like to pick at them so we can feel better about ourselves? That's an awful lot of it. There can be a lot of reasons, a lot of jealousies. There can be all kinds of things that we pick at each other about for various reasons. But a lot of it is just so we can feel better about ourselves. If we can put them lower than us, or them have more faults and problems than us, then we can feel better about ourselves. So a lot of this, nearly all of it, is all about self and wanting to feel good about ourselves, even at the expense of others. Now, God tells us we're to love others as ourselves. So why do we put them down in order to lift ourselves above them? This is the very basis of Christianity, is loving them and exalting them as much as you do yourself. He who seeks to be exalted will be abased, and he who abases himself will be exalted. And we have all imbibed of that in seeking to exalt ourselves above each other. Now we often attribute that scripture just to offices or positions in church or whatever, exalting ourselves into the uppermost seat or you know, whatever in the synagogue as the Pharisees did. But it's bigger than that, and it's more personal than that. Because if we try to exalt ourselves above each other on a personal level, we're doing the same thing. It may just not be as obvious and as public as is a position in the church. But we all do it on a personal level. Well, where was I when I got off onto all that? It's in Romans 4, verse 8. I want to go on down just a little more in this context. Uh, I stopped there when it came to heirs of the world and what we are to be and where we are to rule and what attitudes we need to have toward one another so that we can rule in equanimity and love and uh, concern for each other and for the world. Verse 14, For if they which are of the law be heirs... Faith is made void, and the promise made of none effect. If it's just a matter of law, it won't get us there, because we all break it. But if it's faith and moving forward and believing God, then that is counted for something. Because the law works wrath, works death, the penalty of the law. For where no law is, there is no transgression. So if there were no rules, you wouldn't transgress anything. you just do what you wanted it. Therefore, it is of faith that it might be grace to the end, the promise might be sure to all the seed, not to that only which is of the law, but to that also which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So as it is written, I have made you a father of many nations before him whom he believed, even God, who quickens the dead and calls those things which be not as though they were. He has, foremost in His mind, the desire to quicken each of us. By quicken, it means resurrect and glorify. You'll be a whole lot quicker in mind, and quicker in movement, and quicker in everything once you're glorified. We're pretty slow in mind and body today. But we'll be made into spirit. And that is God's purpose and hope. For all of us. That's why he called you and me now. Now we all recognize the need for the world to change, don't we? The war, the fighting, the arguing, the politics, the murder, the theft. All those things we recognize as problems around us. When you travel somewhere, you worry about someone breaking into your car. You worry about being mugged. You worry about... A lot of things. You feel insecure because of the way things are. Now, all those things that are in the world that make us insecure and frustrated, and that we hate to see around us, and we hate to see our children be exposed to, and so on and so forth, are all things that we need to change ourselves. And that's why we're here to do it. We tend to think like the world. We tend to think like human, carnal beings and be selfish. Those are the things that are wrong with this whole world that we despise. And yet we find it still within ourselves. So, God says, I will give you my spirit... In the spring, and you will suffer through the summer, until the fall, when I will give you eternal life. So here we are, suffering through it. But we are given the opportunity to change ourselves so that we can change the world. Let's recognize the challenge that is before us. We feel frustrated because we can't change the world. We can't change the news headlines. We can't change AIDS. We can't change mosquitoes and thorns on cactuses. We can't change anything in this world. And we're frustrated by it. <clears throat> what do we have the opportunity to fix? Just self. Just ourselves. And God says, if you'll make that fix, I will give you opportunity to help fix the world. I can't fix anybody in this room, and neither can you. And you will beat your brains out trying to change others, and you will get nowhere. Do you realize that? You can be so frustrated about the way people are. And you know what? You can't do a thing about it. They are what they are. So we frustrate ourselves about how other people are around us. We frustrate ourselves because we want to shake them away, make them do what we want them to do. Be like we want them to be. And you can't do it, and therefore you stay frustrated. Frustrated. Because they're not going to do things the way you want. I probably won't. Sorry. I answer to God. I'm trying to do it as best I can His way. And I fail daily. So condemn me if you want. Be mad at me if you want. Be frustrated at me if you want. But you're only going to frustrate and upset your own life. Beyond a certain point, I'm not going to let you upset and frustrate my life. I'm not going to do it. If I went home every night and worried about all the things that had been thought and said about me through the day, I would drive myself crazy. I'm not letting that happen. You can pray for me, but it doesn't do you any good to have an attitude or a grudge about me or about each other. You only hurt yourself. I've seen ministers drive themselves virtually insane and their wives insane by bringing it home at night. When we're out visiting people all day long every day. And they'd lay in bed and worry and frustrate and worry and make themselves sick over someone's problems. They ruined their own lives and their wives' lives and the wives of their children. And some of them drove themselves to early death and heart attack and cancer as a result. Now, I am thankful that I was not that way. That doesn't mean I'm not concerned. But I always figured, if I sit down with people and I talk to them and I give them all the counsel from God's Word and my experience the best I can, I've done what I can do. I can go home and I can pray about it and I turn it loose. Usually. Now if somebody upsets me a lot, then sometimes it takes me a little while to get over it. But not usually too long. There's no sense in it. It does you no good to worry about someone else someone else is thinking of you. You can't change what they're thinking of you, so why worry yourself sick about it? I was able to go home for the most part through my life in those years, and turn off the switch and figure to that tomorrow's another day. I did all I could today. now's the time to forget about it. Take it up again tomorrow. I prefer to sleep at night. Always have been able to, thankfully. Don't lay awake very often worrying about stuff. It doesn't do any good. Has worry ever solved a problem? Ninety-five percent of the stuff you worry about never happens anyway. But you make yourself miserable worrying about stuff that's beyond your control. What good is it? You can fuss and fume all you want about the way I do things. But I'm me, and I'll probably do things the way I do, with a certain amount of change, wherever I can, the way I do them, for the rest of this life. I get frustrated the way I do things sometimes, too. So welcome to the party. If you want to worry about the way I do things, I guess that's your business, but you're not going to frustrate me, you're going to frustrate you. So, get over it. You're trying, I'm trying. We're all trying. (laughs) And by that I mean we're working at it, but it also can mean we're all a trial to each other. Well, that's just the way it is. You know what? There are no two of us in this room that are alike in very many ways. How can you have this many people and have so many different personalities and attitudes and approaches to life? Every being is unique. Every human, there's only one of. Now there are certain trends <laughs> the 10 commandments that we all have trouble with. But we are so different. And you can frustrate yourself all you want by one worrying about somebody being different than you are. What makes you think that you have a right or have a, a monopoly on doing things the right way? The only reason you think you're right is because it's you. Somebody else might have a totally different idea of how, how right is than you do. But it's our ego and our vanity often that gets us in trouble. There's a right way. There's a wrong way. There's a different way. There are lots of different ways. But the problem arises when it's my way. That's where we get in trouble. I want my way, and we're not willing to consider other options. There are many ways to skin a cat, many ways to do something, and they're not always necessarily right or wrong. But we adjudge them right or wrong because they're different from the what we would do. God does not want all these yellow pencils. We used to hear that in Worldwide Church of God in the fifties. But then we all became yellow pencils, even though we were told that's not what God wanted. No, God wants us to all be different. And if God wants he made us all different, didn't he? We're all so different from each other. He made us that way. Each human being, by design, is unique and different than any other human being. And even as alike, as two people might think they are, and therefore they want to get married because, oh, we we just think alike on everything. No, you don't. You may kid yourself that that's the case for a while, but sooner or later the truth will come out and you will find that you do not think just alike on everything. God designed us that way. So why then do we frustrate ourselves worrying about why everybody doesn't do it the way we want it done? We make ourselves miserable. And it opens... Criticism. It opens criticism. And then we feel bad about each other when we become critical and judgmental of each other. We can all learn from each other. We truly can. Because there's somebody around that does something better than you do. thinks better about something or has a better attitude in certain areas than you do. We can all learn from each other, but we need to all give each other the benefit of the doubt. We need to all be forgiving and loving as our Father is with us. And remove each other's sins as far as the East is from the West. It sounds so wonderful when I read that Scripture and I think about me and how I want God to remove my sins that far. So it's a positive, inspirational, wonderful feeling to read that scripture and think, boy, I hope God does that for me. But you know what? He says, I will only do that for you if you do the same for your brethren. If you do not forgive and remove their sins the way I promised to remove yours, I will not remove yours. I will judge you. As you judge, if you forgive, I will forgive. If you do not forgive, I will not forgive. He chooses to whom he will impute sin based on our attitude and what we do toward others. And if we are not forgiving and loving and merciful and kind to each other, He will not be forgiving and loving and merciful and kind to us. There is no room for negative attitudes. There is only room for positive. Some of us tend to be negative by nature. That has to change. We have to become positive in our judgment and our feelings as God is. It's an uphill battle if because of background and training and genetics and the way you were treated as a youth or whatever, it's an uphill battle if you look down upon and are negative toward others by nature. We all are to a degree. But some of us have a worse case of it than others simply because of background and everything else that goes into making us what we are today. But it's something we have to repent of, isn't it? Something we have to change. Well, that's just the way I am. Well, then, be different than what you am. Okay? Change it. Fix it. God makes it very clear. If you're forgiving and loving, merciful, you'll receive that. If you're unforgiving and unmerciful and negative toward others, then that's the judgment you're going to get. So what is conversion? Conversion is change. If we have those thought patterns and have always had them, we're supposed to change them. That's what we're here for. We're here to be like God is, not like we've been. Okay? That's the challenge. Become like God. And love each other as He loves us. He loved us so much, He had one Son. Or one being there with Him who became the Son. The only one of equal power, the only one who was equal in any way because everyone else was a created being around him. And he gave up his only soul mate for you and me. What are we willing to give up for one another? An attitude? A grudge? Because... We keep score. Well, I did this for you, and I did this for you, and you didn't do nothing for me. Are we scorekeepers? Aren't we told not to let our right hand know what our left hand is doing? And yet in our mind, we are keeping score? I've done more for you than you've done for me? You know what? Your treasure tinkles out of heaven when you have that attitude. If we don't think about it, if we just do with our right hand and our left hand everything we can for one another, we don't count at all. We just do. Because it's in our heart and our mind and our attitude to be as Christ and the Father were and are. And that's to serve and to give and to love. So we don't keep score. If anybody keeps score, it's going to be God. And He's either going to say you are giving and loving and serving and forgiving, or you aren't. And you're either going to rise from the earth or you're not. Based on how we treat each other right here today and tomorrow. You do not have a separate spiritual life From the others in this room or on this telephone line. You do not. You can think it's just you and me Lord. And I'm praying to you. And have mercy on me. And bless me. And blah, blah, blah. But when he makes his judgment. It is going to be based upon. How we treat one another. How we act toward one another. What we think of one another. What we don't think of one another. He said that's what our judgment is based upon. When was I naked and blind and hungry? When any of these were. I will forgive you if you forgive others. I will have mercy upon you if you have mercy upon others. But if you do not, I will not have it upon you. See, the choice, really, the option is ours. Blessed is that man to whom God does not impute sin. If we are loving and giving and serving and positive toward one another and take our knives and our words out of each other's backs, he will take the knives and the words out of our backs. If we do not, he won't. If you think you can have a spiritual life and a relationship with the Father and the Son in heaven, apart from your brothers and sisters in Christ, you have another thing coming. And you are very self righteous and don't even know it. Because you cannot be forgiven. Apart from these, your brothers and sisters. You cannot enter the kingdom of God as the bride of Christ apart from your brothers and sisters. So don't think it's you and me, Lord, and all these others around me that don't measure up to my standard because God doesn't look at it that way. Now, do these words go over our heads like water off a duck's back? Or will we let them penetrate? Will we pray about them? You know, you can forget all, everything was said in the sermon by the end of Potluck, or maybe in line. It's real easy to do. But can you take something home with you and work on it? I want to be one to whom God does not impute sin. Therefore, I have to forgive everything around me that is not of God that my brothers and sisters do or say or think that I know about and forgive them and have mercy upon them. If I can do that, God will not impute sin to me. But if I do not, he will not remove my sin. So does that define better when he says, blessed is that man to whom God does not impute sin, how he makes that determination, how he decides it? It has everything to do with us right here and how we treat one another. It's how he makes his judgment. Well, that's enough for today.